Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Dr. Jay Schwartz. We've crossed paths many times, but not recently. I'm looking forward to catching up, and I'm looking forward to having him share his story, not just with me, but uh, his origin story up to the present with my faithful listeners as well. But first, thanks sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Welcome, old friend, Jay. Hi, Jim. Uh, what have you been up to in the last few decades? A lot of twists and turns in your hobby journey. Start us out and tell us some of the high points. And unfortunately, I think there's some low points in there, too. But you have uh, smiled through it all. So what's the secret? I think faith in God is prevailing. But I felt blessed. Uh, my parents brought me up in a, a place called Hyde Park, which is on the south side of Chicago. I was born on the University of Chicago campus. I attended university lab school, and I tell people I became famous after President Obama became president because I went to the same school as the Obama girls. My sister went to the same school that Obama went to. There Two you of go. My sisters, yeah. So we yeah. Have, we have Obama connection. <laughs> As a kid, you're in Chicago area and you're collecting there. Mm -hmm. And were you more serious than the other collectors in your neighborhood? Or? Um, I was pretty hardcore. I grew up in the 1950s on the South Side. For those uh, listeners of yours who know Chicago, it's a big city with a line of demarcation. North Side kids followed the Cubs. South Side kids followed the White Sox. The Cubs stunk. And my White Sox, the Go Go, -Go Sox. Yeah. We had Jungle Jim Rivera. Mm -hmm. We had. Little Louis Aparicio, Nelly Fox, Billy Pierce. We were in the race for the pennant every year until 1959. We lost to the game. So you're collecting as a kid, and then like many people, you probably took a break. Correct. Then we crossed paths in the early 80s. Yeah, south side of Chicago, I was ripping packs just like all the other kids. And the, the worst card I could ever rip out of a pack was Mickey Mantle because we all always hated Mantle. So they went into the bike spokes. But if I got a, a White Sox card, they were the most valuable ones. Just like most kids, you hit your teen years and you discover girls and the cards go into a box or they get thrown out by mom. Well, the story is that when I was a professor at SMU and I ran into you, I got invited out of the Astrodome for a ball game. And uh, my friend said, hey, they got a card show right here in the dome. I went, card show? I don't play poker or anything. He was talking about baseball cards. So we walk in, and the first guy had a, a, a booth, and his display case had a Sandy Koufax rookie. And it wasn't priced. And I, I asked the guy, I said, how much is that card? I was thinking, I have that card. The guy says, I need six for that card. I go, six dollars for that card? And he thought I fell off the pumpkin truck because he was asking 600. And that was, remember, in the 80s. And that's when I rediscovered my collection. Which you still had intact. Correct. Okay. And so then you collected avidly in the 80s. Correct. What happened was I was a professor at SMU. I hurried back to Dallas from Houston, opened this box, and here's stacks of Clemente rookies and Koufax rookies and all kinds of mostly beat up mantles and what all. And I realized I've got tens of thousands of dollars worth of cards in these boxes that I've had stored away. I started building sets like I did in my boyhood days. Which is what people did in those days. I took my professorship out to California, moved to California. Then I connected with a, a few guys, Mike Burkus, uh, Gavin Riley, the guys who were just starting out the Nationals, and I started going to the, the local shows. What happened from that was, because I was set building, there was a guy named Jim Kovacs. I, don't know I remember Jim Kovacs for sure. So what and Jim he was did, a set builder's dream and nightmare all at the same time. Correct. 
And what I discovered is Jim was ahead of his time. There was very little intelligence about the tough comments. But what Jim did is he had binders. And if he sold that tough common, the $20 common became a $30 common and became a $100 common. And someone would say, the Beckett says it's only a $2 card. And Jim would tell them where they could go. He, he would say where they could go to try to find another one. But when it's a truly tough card, you know, then his prices stood. People would go to him as last resort. Correct. Because he was pricing according to demand. his experience and, and demand. Okay. And supply too. Okay. So yeah, that's a name from the past. So you were dealing with that because you were trying to complete sets. I realized this guy is onto something. And he kind of liked me for some reason. He was a nicer guy than his veneer would show because the old timers remember he was gruff and he was tough and he would just tell you where you could take your cards. He liked me and he says, Jay, if you want to set up a few cards at the end of my table, I'm going to do San Francisco next weekend. Come on and join me. And I did. And I started to learn from him and I became a show dealer and I eventually became a national show dealer and did about 15 nationals in the 80s and into the 90s. Through that, I completed every set raw from 1933 Gaudi through 1975 tops in all four major sports. Now let's fast forward to a dark time in your life because I want to make sure we have time to get to the bright light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel was pretty dark. What happened after you'd had that accomplishment? You're building a home, as I understand, but I want to hear from you. I'm not a feelings guy that much, but it had to be a kick in the stomach. It was indeed. I was fully aware if you've got a complete 33 Gaudi set or you've got a complete 52 top set, which I did among others, you've got a lot of money invested in this collection, even if it's raw. I don't want to say they're all mint, but they were X better like that. So I realized I needed to protect these cards. I was building a house up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and I contracted with a guy to build a steel vault. And he designed a vault that had three-inch thick steel walls with a vault door. I put all my collection in there, and I thought, now I don't need to worry about my collection anymore. And I was wrong. Did you suspect immediately that it was an inside job, or were you just completely confounded? I was at my professorship down at Cal Poly Pomona, and I drove up the little mountain road, and the front door was open, and my German shepherd was looking at me somewhat woefully, and I realized something is not right here. I immediately ran to the vault, and the vault door was open. And uh, and the memory is vivid. I looked in, and the only thing that was left in there was my 62 top set was open like somebody was looking through it, and maybe they heard something or whatever and scooted. And by that time, they had taken everything but that 62 set and called the police, got a detective on the case. They did all their investigations, and they couldn't come up with anything. But yes, you're right. The guy who built it was gone. Couldn't find him. Long story short, about eight years later, I got a phone call, and the voice sounded familiar, and she said, Jay, do you remember me? And I said, you sound familiar. This is Lynn. He did it. It was the guy who built the vault, and then she told me, we're divorced, and he's in the West Virginia State Penitentiary for Armed Robbery, and he sold all your cards. Okay, so, so, so that, that was the low point. I just can't even imagine uh, that. But and we wanted plenty of time to get to the good part of the story, that you've restored that, uh, perhaps even in better shape, 
There's a whole story about grading, providing an, another layer of protection with serial numbers and, and registration and all that stuff. So you're a big set registry guy, but how did you pick yourself up off the mat and say, I'm going to start over? Because for a lot of people, that'd be at least a depression sentence, if not a, a death sentence. Yeah. One of the things I will say that I think will be instructive to all your listeners, no matter if their collections are large or small, is make sure that your assets are protected. And I was insured, but I was not insured like I should have been. I had to settle reluctantly for pennies on the dollar, and I was devastated. And at that point, in terms of my collecting mentality, I wanted nothing to do with cards, and I walked away from cards for about a decade. I just couldn't believe that this happened. And so I focused on other activities. Jim, you and I started our careers as college professors, and there's a lot of creative things you can do as a professor. I invested in that, and I got early tenure and promotion and went through all of those gates. And I, I was getting married and personal life, first baby, who's now a university senior, and all of those things. I just walked away from cards for those years. What was the spark that got you back in then? Because well, now, now we're getting close to 10 or 12 years ago or so, right? Correct. I've had a series of eureka moments in my life. It was in 2008. And of course, I was aware that your old company was grading cards and PSA was grading because I was a national show dealer at the dawning of grading and I was selling grading cards and, and all of that. And so I had this moment. I think I can do the same thing graded. Well, I just started small beginnings. Don't try to just build Mount Everest. Start with a small hill. Start with objectives that are realistic, that are attainable. Once you reach one objective, then try a little bit higher hill. That's exactly what I did. Okay. To what extent was it self-sustaining or were you investing? Did you have a monthly budget? Because you aggressively jumped back in. Did you have this insurance settlement that you parlayed? Because over these interim years, you, you've built an amazing collection from having all this stuff stolen and then starting over. And now today you've got an amazing collection. Did you do it by uh, brilliance or by having an inheritance or an insurance settlement or just wise buys or excellent trading? I, I, I don't want to give myself too much credit, but I was very experienced in scarcity and availability and all of those issues. And by that time, the set registry had started and pop counts. I don't have a PhD in statistics like you do, but I taught a course called marketing research, which is very analytical. So I know numbers and actually taught statistics at Chapman University. I can read numbers and interpret them. So what I did is I said, okay, my first objectives in 2008 will be 1955 tops to 1965 tops or something that was manageable as I would get near set completion, I would add another set and slowly build up my collection. So there's that collecting aspect of it. Now, the other aspect which you've asked about is the financial part. Yes, I did get an insurance settlement. It wasn't grand, but it was enough that I could do some things because it was in the tens of thousands, as I recall. But then I developed some algorithms that allowed me to buy and sell in a way that I would work margins and soft spots in markets. I was a marketing professor after all. So I could find places where I could find what I call value buying analytically 
That helped me build my collection such that now I am complete in almost everything in my collection and I'm simply upgrading a 9 to a 10 or an 8 to a 9 or whatever it is. So are you saying that your algorithms are understanding anomalies in the market from a grading perspective, that the, the 6 is especially cheap compared to the 7? Or are you saying that there are distribution anomalies in the supply of the cards, that first and last cards we know of, but like the Jim Kovacs thing, that certain cards you're going to have trouble finding. I will say this, that if you carefully examine the data, you will see anomalies in the data, and you can seize upon those anomalies, and you can actually build a collection that is superior to the investment dollars you put into the collection. As a former statistics professor, you know where I'm going with this. I've got a variety of ways I sell that may be unorthodox, but they're effective for me. I have a, a network of folks that I connect with in order to buy. Are you going to this national? And what are your current objectives in your collecting journey? I have attended the last two nationals. I attended the Cleveland National in 2018. There's a reason for that. I got a, a phone call from Cosetta, who is the set registry manager at PSA. She called and said, congratulations, select you as having the collection of the year for 2018. And of course, I was really excited. So I went off to Cleveland and got the uh, plaque and gave the speech. I basically roamed around and saw some of the old faces from our era, quote-unquote. It's been the first national I've been in some time. But then I realized there really aren't that many things that I can buy here because when you've got pretty much everything... But then 2019 rolled around and I got named to the PSA Hall of Fame in Chicago, and I bought nothing there. I go to the national just to see the guys. There really aren't very many buying opportunities for me anymore. So, so are you a marketing guy with nothing to market other than the fun of the hobby? That's a great question, Jim. I have morphed into selling. I'm slowly selling off some of my collection, but I'm still building this premium assemblage of high-end uh, vintage cards. I don't do anything current. Was the first over yet? Yeah. The man that